Air. Negative affect attenuates interpersonal capitalizing on immoral deeds. Recently published in the Journal of Emotion. I mean the boldness of naming a journal emotion. I love so much. The Madonna of journals. <laughs> I was going to say the Beyonce of journals. The Zendaya of journals. <laughs> Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to, if you know what I mean. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash at San Diego State University. Today, Sassan will bring us a exuberating discussion about HBO comedy series Insecure. Super excited about that. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Evil Joy is Hard to Share. Negative attitudes attenuate interpersonal capitalization on immoral deeds. <laughs> That's my dramatic read of that with like an evil laugh at the end. Yeah, you love it? Good. Yes. <laughs> and then in good or bad advice, we're going to be talking about some advice on social media and discuss, as always, if we believe it's good or bad. If you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us. Facebook us, Instagram us all at Attached Podcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, please kindly rate and review it and gently smash that subscribe button. But before we get to all of that goodness, how's it going? What have you guys been up to? Woods? So it's been cold here on and off recently in Texas. I know it's very uh, unusual. So I feel like I need indoor activities that aren't like cleaning and aren't work, you know, on the weekends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so recently I have been doing a deep dive into like ancestry.com and exploring oh. like my family tree. Oh my and, gosh. And, yeah, it's been really interesting. And, um, we live a long time, people in my family, on both really? sides. Like, for generations and generations, people are hitting 95, 100. Wow. Found somebody the other day that it says 117 years. What? And it's from many generations back. So I think I might be a vampire. <laughs> I think that's what it Listen, means. you talk to Robert Pattinson. Sure. Sure. Brad yes. Pitt. Who else has it's, been famous vampires? I think they're acting. I think something oh. very special sure might be in my that? genetics. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Based <laughs> on your family's story. Just my family stories uh, that have somehow made it into uh, some documents. I don't know if y'all have ever used Ancestry.com, but it sorts through um, many, many hundreds of years of many, many different kinds of documents from all of these different countries and tries to um, source them and connect them to the people in your family tree, uh, many of whom I don't know and my parents also don't seem to know. Um, oh. But Jesse's really interested because we've now tried to do my husband, his family tree, and um, he gets really excited if he has somebody make it to 65. <laughs> so, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, he's increasingly concerned about how long I might live <laughs> because there's a lot of longevity. Um, but really, really interesting new stuff to discover that I get really then excited to share with my family. So that's been oh. a fun little diversion. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Um Yeah. My husband's side lives very, very long. Like he was in college when his last great grandparent passed away, like really, yeah. really long. Yeah. My side is like Jesse's side. So like yeah. I fully am living our life as a married couple and family member in a way that I won't have to ever live without him. Like in my mind mentally, right. like I fully expect He's him to outlive me and you. like yeah. setting him up for that. So when I'm uh, gone, here's how to make breakfast exactly before the kids get to school sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All of these things. Yeah. So 
I don't know if it's healthy or not, but it at least prevents <laughs> right. me from having anxiety right. about having to right. live a single life again. Uh, right. Anyway, on that happy note, Susan, what's yeah. up with you? <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. Um, Indeed, fascinating. I'm going to with that a little bit to see if there's an option for me. Because yeah. I know where my family came from, like, you know, one mm. area and then we came here. So I don't know. I don't have much faith given like, how documents were not yeah. typically recorded and saved for uh, within my community back home. So um, it would be that. interesting to see if ancestry.com had like anything pulled from uh, Eritrea. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it would be. Yeah. yeah. I'd give them some serious props if they, I definitely value <laughs> them. Like if yeah. we all figured out a way to get into Eritrean, you know, and get some documents from that government, then, you know, <laughs> really it's be been, much harder for me to find uh, information out of Italy. Um, but that's also oh. family members that emigrated more recently. Whereas like documents from um, a Swiss line that emigrated longer ago, that's easier to find because I think you're right. A lot of that documentation is happening in the US. And so I can find their immigration records and their World War One draft cards and all of wow. that kind of data a little easier. Fair enough. Well, on my end, I have just been in recovery mode from a really bad sinus infection. So Aww. honestly, I don't know that I have done much but survive it and survive like Good. the workload to catch up after having been <laughs> oh my knocked off my feet for a few days. So um, it has been um, me focused on starting new episodes of shows, trying to like just not be bored to death by laying in bed all day. I really didn't have the capacity to think because my brain was so pressured and clouded that it couldn't work while lying around. So I have started a new show, PR. I think you'll be happy with me. It's called Outlander. (gasps) Oh my gosh. I'm a little bit excited. I am too. Maybe it'll pop up in an episode one day teaser question mark. I imagine she just laughs at me. No, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. So far, I have a hard time grounding it to reality, but I'm going to. I'm only on episode reality. four. Four. Episode four. There's lots of time. Oh my gosh. There indeed there is time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I might have a new podcast recommendation, and I'm kind of hoping. And this is more focused on Woods, but also maybe, Sess, you'll like this as well. Does the name Brett Goldstein ring a bell for you, Woods? yes. I haven't listened to it yet, but yes, I want to hear your take. Yes. Films to be buried with is his podcast. So Brett Goldstein is in uh, the show Ted Lasso. He plays Roy Kent. Um and we've talked about it, and Sarah obviously loves 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 the show. I also enjoy it; it's fantastic. Um, but I only know his podcast because of a crossover they do with one of my favorite podcasts, which is Off Menu. Um, and the crossover they do is called Menus to Be Buried With. Clever. Anyway, indeed. But I've never like listened to an interview with Brett before or anything. I just know his Roy Kent character. And I know that he was a writer on the show and then popped up into that character. But I didn't know that he was funny. Oh, like, have yes. you ever I, uh, just on this episode? He's funny. It's also a little bit dry and goofy sense of humor. Fantastic. I cannot wait to subscribe to Films to be Buried with based on this crossover episode. And I wanted to share that with you because I know you both like nice. humor. Thank you. you like to laugh. You like Maybe humor. You don't necessarily love films, but um, you don't dislike them. And Sesson, I think you would enjoy it too because it's humor and you like to laugh as well. I think I do. Basic human requirements. You might <laughs> like this podcast because of what people do. <laughs> I love the uh, character, so I'm intrigued. Uh-huh. I know, yeah. but it's he's completely different from the Very character. Very different, yeah. Like, so much so, where I think the tone of voice is different. Like, Roy Kent has a very low, low tone of voice, and I didn't recognize, because it's obviously a podcast I listen to in my ears. <laughs> I listen to it in my ears rather than my nose or my Science. mouth. <laughs> so I didn't recognize his voice at first because it sounds so much different. So believe it or not, he's not his character. That's the takeaway. You're welcome. (laughs) So 
so hard. When you have somebody in an accent, you just only can think of them in that way, right? Yeah. It's like I know. It's crazy. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationship. So that's what you got for us this week. Well, this week, I want to talk about a show that I watched for years, but I recently watched the finale. So it struck me as something that a show that I felt really connected to is called um, Insecure. It's a long-standing HBO comedy series, and it's based on a story of a young black um, woman trying to sort of build her career while living in LA and managing um, a romantic relationship that sort of goes off the rails and um, some complex like friendships, one in particular. <clears throat> the characters I feel like are really very lovable, intelligent, and like perfectly awkward. Um, I just find the main character and her best friend Molly in particular, there's something really familiar about them, which I think is what draws a lot of people to the show. And it's really supposed to be based on, you know, a set of like romantic relationships that the main character Issa has. But I think it's really centered on one friendship, one relationship in particular, and that's her friendship with um, Molly. And Molly is played by actress Yovane Orji, and she is just I'm one of my favorite actresses at this point. Um, their friendship is um, complicated, to say the least, and I think... It's really, I think, a lesson about how to learn about and maintain a relationship while also like growing and changing yourself and how complex that can be and difficult and painful. Um, And so there's drama in that, there's humor, and there's, again, some pain in that. And it's a really sort of down-to-earth reflection of like the trajectory of relationships, particularly like once you're sort of figuring yourself out after college. I feel like it's consistent with a lot of close relationships during emerging adulthood, um, you know, capturing both like the really great times, the high highs and some of the low lows. Um, and there's a lot that um, happens between their and their friendship as the series goes on. A lot of remarks and missed phone calls and like small ruptures that they don't sometimes repair that ultimately leads yeah. to like uh, this pivotal point in their relationship. I don't want to ruin it for any viewers who might want to watch it. But um, I think the show for me just really reminds me of some questions I had trying to navigate through relationships and friendships as well. It's like, you know, we talk a lot about romantic relationships and how to work through them and what they look like. And I think friendships often don't get that same level of focus. So I agree. Questions that I have, you know, when I that come up for me as I was like really thinking about the show and that relationship is like, um, do you ever question whether or not uh, to distance yourself from someone you have like a longstanding close friendship with? and thinking about that process. And then um, I guess that's my first question. And I sort of wanted to toss it to you to get your take on that. This has been something that's been hard for me in my personally in my life. And I agree with you. There's not a whole lot of research on friendships, especially long-term friendships. Um, Do tend to focus more on the relationship science literature on, siblings or family of origin and romantic relationships for sure. Um, But it's hard with friends, especially when you've had them for a really, really long time. You have a big history together, but something's just not clicking or something is, for me, I noticed that just, you know, being around them creates so much anxiety in me or, you know, I need time to like cycle down after I'm with them trying to, you know, not create arguments and trying to manage the relationship. Sometimes it's just too much for me. I'm not talking about the two of you, by the way. You just need to know that this has nothing to do with you. Um, But it's still a skill I'm learning how to do. You know, it's hard. It can be hurtful to kind of distance yourself from someone, especially those longstanding relationships. And If you're really close, like not doing a complete cutoff, but like just stepping back a little bit. Um, Gosh, I'm still definitely learning and struggling with that, even as a 40-year-old human. 
Yeah, I don't know that I make this decision very intentionally. I think especially over the last few years where oh, yeah. stress COVID. has been so high um, that I think there have been times where I probably unintentionally have decided where to put my very limited energy. And it's not necessarily always been in friendships that are maybe not my closest friendships. Um, but on the flip side, I have also made some more distant friendships closer and stronger during that time through sharing some of that stress. So I'm not sure it's as intentional of a decision as it probably should be in some cases. Um, And also, uh, I think it's important to remind myself too sometimes that um, relationships that go quiet or dormant doesn't necessarily mean those are over. Uh, Just that, especially the last few years, I just have not had the same capacity to be investing in or connecting to as many people as I maybe have been able to before. I think it's a really important question that has um, been really important in my life. So I really am resonating with your reflection that we probably don't put enough energy into researching and talking about these important relationships. That's so interesting you say that because it sort of ties to my next sort of question that I had about like I know you mentioned like sometimes you find yourself pulling back for one reason or another and then finding like maybe a reason to reconnect again. That isn't always really intentional, but just happens to be that the timing is right or just you're in a place where you just can share again or be with that person. But I guess my question too is like, do you think or like it maybe it's not just as simple as do you think, but is it important to invest in a close relationship in the way you do a romantic relationship? Because there's a certain level of investment that we put in to romantic relationships you know you mentioned like pulling back and during moments of stress in romantic relationship you do that there's some really strong implications sometimes around that but with close relationships I wonder if there's the same risks involved and because maybe they're not we don't always engage with a lot of intention around like making a point to really decide how we engage someone or don't engage someone and yeah would you want to go first Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question, too, about um, is it important to maybe be a little bit more intentional about where and how we invest in friendships? Um, I do think um, what's really valuable for me from my really long-term friendships, I have um, very close friends from elementary school that were on a, you know, group text. We talk almost daily. We have for years, um, we traveled last year to all meet up and see each other. And they are not just a source of support, but they also know, like they can read me even when I'm not talking. So when I pull back and they're not hearing from me, they have learned that that's probably means that I'm more stressed and I'm not necessarily asking for help. So they're really brave. I mean, I think they're really brave and I really appreciate when they reach out to say like, "Mm, you got some stuff going on and you're not sharing it. And also we're here when you're ready. And, but they also have that institutional knowledge about you, right? Your stories together are part of your identity. And so I think the way in which we invest energy can also look like lots of different ways. Um, And sometimes um, that is spending a lot of time together, but also sometimes it's, um, telling and retelling some of those same stories and helping you to remember who you are when you most need it. So I can think it can look varied ways with friends. I, I think the intentional piece here is a really uh, good point. I think if we were to look at the research of like intentionality in relationships versus like kind of letting things happen, the, um, research would say being intentional is always important, but that's romantic relationships and applying it to friendships, um, which is you can't always do, right? Because they are different relationships. In my personal experience, the friendships that take time and kind of more slowly build over time and you build that intimacy over time with friendships in particular are the ones that are more long-lasting. The ones that are kind of like quick to get really Intimate might be the wrong word, but like chummy really, really quick and you spend a lot of time really, really quick together. Sometimes also for me, dissolve more rapidly as well. 
So I think the intentionality is good, but also what you're saying is just kind of let things build and be there when, um, for me, that kind of slow build and people being there when you need them and vice versa, that has to go both ways, are the ones that are the most long lasting and are the most fulfilling because you do have that institutional knowledge of each other. Um, but at the same time, even when you have that institutional knowledge of each other, sometimes you grow apart and that's okay. Like I think holding on to friendships for the sake of holding on to friendships, I used to do a lot. Like I had a friend who we met when we were three and we were friends all through college through our twenties. And it just started not working right it it was almost like a every time we were together there was arguments there was fighting there was tension and it just wasn't we just needed to go our own ways and not necessarily dissolve the relationship but realize we're such different people than obviously when we were three and even though we have so much institutional knowledge of each other we weren't good for each other you know like we weren't building each other up it wasn't a healthy place to be and that's okay, you know, like these aren't relationships. If they're good, then hold on to them and invest in it, absolutely. But if they're not, if they're doing damage to you and you're doing damage to each other, I think just because you have the institutional knowledge of each other doesn't mean you should stay together as close friends, in my opinion. <laughs> but again, there's no research on that. So it's just building on relationship science and applying it to friendships. Right. I mean, uh, both of your comments raise a lot of more questions for me <laughs> answers about like so much now <laughs> and thinking about friendships. But, you know, it makes me really curious to keep thinking about these questions around friendships and just the way they evolve and how that process also informs like sometimes the decisions you have to make as an adult about whether or not to stay together. It's like there's not a lot of in when you're young, you come together with people because of proximity and because of a shared interest in right. a thing, right? That And like out of desire to have that companionship and that playmate. But as you get older and you're thinking about value and belief alignment, it's like, okay, well, are we similar in the ways we need to be in order to really continue to invest and continue to build that intimacy? And so it raises a lot of questions and I'd be... Um, excited and curious to see how we can maybe continue to talk about this maybe on a different episode. I'd love it. Yeah. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled Evil Joy is Hard to Share. Negative Affect Attenuates Interpersonal Capitalizing on Immoral Deeds. Recently published in the Journal of Emotion. I mean the boldness of naming a journal emotion. So I love so much. The Madonna of journals. <laughs> I was going to say the Beyonce of journals. The Zendaya of journals. <laughs> Written by Dr. Michael Misiak and his team at Adam Mitskevich University and Ohio University. These authors explore a twist on capitalization, a relationship process uh, we've discussed before on Attached, if you remember well back, I believe, to season one. Uh, this is an interpersonal interaction where people share their good news and successes with others. As we've discussed before, when we share our accomplishments with friends, families, and sometimes even strangers, and that person we share with responds positively and enthusiastically like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for you, um, we can experience even greater benefits from sharing the success over and above the initial happiness we experience from the success itself. This capitalization process can even help bring people in relationships closer together. So referencing our friend conversation in the previous segment, capitalizing on uh, friends' good news is a really, really good way to uh, build on those relationships and become closer. However, what if success is achieved through immoral means? Could it impact how people respond to the good news? In other words, if we got a promotion but did it by lying about a colleague's insubordination or do well on a test but admit to cheating off a classmate, do the people we share with feel any differently? 
The authors of this study predict that responders would feel less positively and more negatively when hearing about an accomplishment that was achieved immorally and therefore respond less enthusiastically to the good news. Very fascinating. Um, Sarah, I'm especially curious how these authors explored the immoral aspect of people's achievements. What did they find? What did they do? Tell us more. So, yeah, so they focus on three types of moral violations. Uh, okay. The care harm form of moral violation, which is um, focused on physical or psychological suffering of others. Wow. Okay. The loyalty betrayal type of moral violation, which is really about loyalty to a group or like a okay. group identity. Um, and the purity degradation type of moral violation, which is about, they described it as like a pathogen threat or purity. Um, so we'll describe these a little bit more. I think it's easier to sort of understand for me when I listen or read their examples, yeah. which are fascinating. Can I just say, I don't think I've ever learned about the different types of moral violations before. No, so yeah. that in and of itself is very yeah. new and fascinating to me. I agree. And part of what they really point out is that these continua of moral and immoral are not necessarily morally good versus morally bad behaviors. Mm. These are lines where people can have lots of different attitudes about what's moral and not. And really, they're focusing on the psychological reaction to this immoral or moral ways in which we can achieve success, which I think is really very nuanced. Um, and so they did this through two different studies. The first was focused on this process in strangers and the second on romantic partners. Okay. And they're unique. So they have some similarities and their replication, um, but they have some unique aspects, which I think are really fascinating. So this first study, they uh, included 84 young participants. So they're 18 to 27, half women. Um, and they each provided responses to capitalization attempts that were recorded by strangers. So they were told that in prior research studies that these authors had done, participants had been asked to write down a short story about a recent success that they had had, and then they were photographed along with that story. And then these participants in this study um, were told that a computer would uh, present these stories of success and these pictures, that's why they would see pictures of these people. Um, and also the computer would randomly choose whether they would provide a story, a story of their success in a photo at the end, um, even demonstrating the equipment for taking a photo, like the here's the camera and the backdrop and see, it's a whole thing. But in actuality, what they were really responding to uh, were six short stories uh, about a capitalization attempt, two per type of moral violation that were um, not remotely shared by prior participants, but were validated in a pilot study where participants had rated the level of morality of each of these. Sure. Uh, they accompanied them with a picture of the person sharing those stories, but that was pulled from a database of emotional facial expression pictures. So each story had two versions, success through immoral means or immoral. a second version of the same outcome achieved morally. So for example, I explained to my daughter why fruit and vegetables are so good for her health. I taught her to eat her dinner to the end versus I spanked my daughter for not eating dinner. I taught her to eat dinner to the end. So the end result oh. is the same. She eats her whole dinner, but I either do it through explaining why that's healthy or I spank her. Um, another version of this uh, group loyalty piece, I gave an interview and I talked about how cool people are from my home village and the editors liked it so much they offered me a permanent broadcast on their radio. Nice. Uh, versus I talked about how much I hate people from my home village, which is doing your home village dirty. So you don't want to do that. Um, or uh, this third version about... Um, um, that purity piece. I married yeah. my best friend. We had a wonderful wedding versus I married my cousin. We had a wonderful wedding. Um, oh, that yeah. is okay. You know? It took a different turn there. Yeah. I also <laughs> read that. I was like, oh, huh, interesting. So they had two outcomes for each of these two types of stories. And after each story, the participants rated their emotional responses. And also they were invited to respond like free text wise, just to respond freely to that capitalization attempt as close as possible to how they'd respond to a friend in a similar real world situation. Oh, okay. Um, and what they found was that success achieved through these immoral routes led to less enthusiastic and less positive responding in part because the responders had 
more negative emotional reactions to those immoral successes. Yeah. And especially true for the care and harm stories. Um, One is because they're really focused on the harm towards another person, which can be uh, an especially important thing to react to uh, for lots of good reasons. Um, So in the second study, they replicated this approach using a real-time interaction with uh, 91 couples, all dating. So again, young, average age was about 22. They'd been together anywhere from two months to 10 years, but average of three. Um, And so they say they replicated, but really the methodology here is a little bit uh, different and also really creative. So they had these couples interact using a computer interface, but they were in the same room and they um, really focused on that care harm piece, this violence against kids. They also allowed them to communicate Uh, their response to their partner non-verbally through sending a selfie. So rather than just like free responding through text and words that they analyze, they also send a facial reaction, which is exactly how you might do that in real life, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So they created this problem-solving game with eight tasks. They were parenting problems where an adult had to intervene to ensure a kid's safety. And they had multiple like different solutions and moral and immoral uh, versions so essentially, there um, it gave these participants the opportunity to play this quote game and achieve a success that they could then share with their partner through their computer. And really, what they were um, being told was that there is a right answer. There's a most efficacious parenting solution here. A panel of experts has determined what's the most effective. Okay. So then they really can achieve success. So that they have selected a solution and what they select is immoral. They're told that, oh, that's really successful. They win a dollar fifty. They can tell their partner. Their partner sees that they chose the right answer. But even so, that's not the moral thing to do. So you're a parent of two kids fighting together, uh, for example. And if you don't stop the fighting, they can cause themselves serious harm. So you can choose, I am trying to stop the fight by asking them to stop fighting or I hit each of the children and warn them I will do it again if they don't stop fighting. (laughs) Right. So that would be a selfie. Patricia's giving me the perfect (laughs) facial expression. Uh, So what they found, again, replicated their first study that this immoral success resulted in less enthusiastic responses through that negative emotional reaction. I feel uh, more sad or I feel more angry. I don't, that negative versus positive feelings about it but it also was showed up in the selfies so they coded those selfies and um their faces were also less happy so they weren't just less enthusiastic they looked like ew gross with you i don't think that was how they coded that necessarily but (laughs) (laughs) um so i think it's a really interesting twist on we have talked about capitalization before and attached um Mm -hmm. and we've talked about how important it can be that when your friend or your partner shares good news with you to respond enthusiastically to respond positively um and that's important but there might be some nuance to that it might not always be positive to be enthusiastic (laughs) if the person who's sharing with you is doing that through some uh immoral or sneaky or harmful ways it might actually be appropriate to be less enthusiastic uh, and that that's also okay we don't always need to have our reaction driven by maybe what the person across from us is hoping for we can appropriately tailor our responses uh to these cheaters (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're not just cheating Cheaters. i don't know there, there's lots of different immoralities that work in here, but, and i think it'd be really interesting then to test this in uh, uh how this impacts relationship quality right so they're doing this in the moment research but now looking at the relative benefits of how these types of responses are tailored to that success could be mm-hmm. really really cool yeah it's so fascinating i mean i also wonder how this would look like in like adolescence maybe sure who are like you know sometimes risk taking is cool right 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 so that could also be interesting like in a completely different population where different types of morals is the wrong i mean adolescents obviously have similar morals but like there's different praise sometimes put on different behaviors that would be considered bad. Like it's just, it would be really cool to see it replicated in that type of sample. But that group loyalty piece might show up especially strong because these yeah. effects were strongest for that care harm 
type of scenario. But these couples, on the whole, didn't have kids. There was like 2% of their study, 2% that had kids. So these are hypothetical. Whereas if you're talking about group loyalty among adolescents, where in-group, out-group identity is so powerful, you're right. It could be really, really interesting. Very cool. I'm curious the pictures and so these pictures included the faces of the people supposedly who executed these scenarios right or who executed these outcomes right so in the first study they had pictures that were supposed to be of these prior participants telling but they were not for each participant the picture was randomly paired with whatever story so they varied it per participant so that there wasn't ever an effect of the to limit the effects of the photo Okay. I was curious to see the effects of the photo and how that could influence one sort of reaction, right? Of course, we know the levels of attraction can sometimes um, have a bias effect. So (laughs) I think this is interesting, too, because it really speaks to the path to achieving something, right? And like how much meaning people put in that as opposed to sort of the outcome, which I think we tend to focus on so much as a society is like the end goal. And thinking about like the level of like not whether if it was just moral or not, but I also think like how much time and effort and energy did you put into something, right? Like when people talk about success, I have to admit one of the first things that trigger how I feel about it is like how hard did they have to work for it? (laughs) The hard worker in me is like, did you work hard for this thing or did you just like inherit it or roll into it? (laughs) <laughs> come from, that's a good right? point yeah 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 well, yep. i appreciate the moral sort of uh, the element to it but i think i lean towards often like you my, in the real world like yeah. what usually applies for me is like whether or not like you just got this thing or you actually really sacrificed and there was struggle there, there was, you know so. so you might have a hard time generally with capitalization well if you you both know me like <laughs> I tend to be ridiculous and boast on most ridiculous things like clothing, but like as a general rule, I tend to be sure. very much like don't share my successes. Like I just, yeah. I don't do that thing very well, right? It's hard. Capitalization, yeah. no, I'm pretty bad at that. I remember you actually saying something very similar when I interviewed for PhD program with you, <laughs> saying something very similar about it might seem like I have achieved some success, but I need you to know how hard I have worked for that. And it's my true. answer to whatever the next question was, was something about like Disney music I listened to recently. I was like, oh, I'm not getting it here. <laughs> nice to meet you all. Thank you so much. <laughs> so serious. <laughs> oh, I know. I could be so serious. Yes. Yeah. I know, I, but we love it. I appreciate that. Accept me no matter what. Um, 100%. But yeah, I appreciate that responses ended up the way they did. I mean, I would hope, right, when someone does something, achieves some level of success through, you know, an act that sort of doesn't align with how we would do something or that poses harm, right? I think it's good to hear that the respondents had a reaction to that. It says a lot more, I think, about the respondents in some way, like the the participants in terms of like their moral sort of you know, compass and altitude that I could appreciate that they really focused on the path as opposed to the outcome. I like it. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents and our friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all of the social medias, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists. But this might come as a shock to you guys. A lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships. I know. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook, all at Attached Podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please kindly rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. As always, um, Remember to share it with your loved ones. Loved ones really like new things to listen to in their ears on their commute to work. In their ears, specifically. Specifically in their ears. That's where we listen. 
this might be new to you. I'm just kidding. You guys are smart. I know it's not. So as your loved one is like getting in the car and going to work in the morning, dropping off the kids, whatever they're doing in the morning, shout, remember to download and subscribe to Attached. They'll get it. They'll download it. And then as they're driving away, say, but remember to only look at your phone at red lights. Those two things are really critical. Perfect. Anyway, today we're going to my perpetual favorite social media uh, for advice. So first, we're going to um, look at advice from Adam Grant. This is uh, both on Twitter and TikTok. They posted it on both, as people do. The cross-platform applications <laughs> really slaying social media here. Um so I'm going to read specifically from uh, the Instagram one, but it's literally the same thing. So Adam Grant, here's the advice. Are you guys ready? Very. So excited. Too many, two as in T-O-O, just so you guys know the spelling, too many people spend their lives being dutiful descendants instead of good ancestors. The responsibility of each generation is not to please their predecessors. It is to improve things for their offspring. It is more important to make your children proud than your parents proud. Good or bad advice? Oof. Woods. I thought Session was going for that. She had a, Oh, do you want so to? Session, I, I need to make the sound to settle the statement. Uh, the feelings? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot with what you no, just No, no, said. no. I know. It is a lot with Adam Grant, what he says said. Woods? Yeah. I think it can make sense. I'm also um, wondering if I'm interpreting that through like my own cultural lens. Potentially. Meaning, I think it's, uh, yes, potentially, or probably as people, as humans do. I mean, I think it's um, uh, good advice in terms of uh, thinking about how we intentionally parent and care for our kids and that that reflects sort of their needs and um, that we're focusing our energy on raising children in a way that is specific to our kids that we have versus sort of what we maybe still have uh, a lasting need to demonstrate to maybe our parents. But in the context of um, being dutiful uh, descendants, I think there are um, lots of um, cultures that might specifically talk about how important it is to um, uh, give honor to ancestors and mm. um, focus on sort of um, this familial uh, pride and putting really good into the universe in a way that our ancestors or prior generations would be proud of. And so I also think I'm probably, my reaction to that initially of like, oh, that feels really good is also probably skewed by my own cultural um, frame. So good advice, but awareness that there's definitely a cultural frame yeah, there. Other people yeah. may easily say it's bad advice. Bad advice. Yeah. So some of your thoughts. Um, so it feels really complicated to, to I, mm -hmm. you know, I think when we think about our past, it very much, and we engage our past, I think it has a very clear effect on like, not just who we are present, but like on the future. I think the two can't really be separated. I think when we're talking about whether or not we're looking to our past to inform how we, I guess I'm thinking about you know, a lot of my clients and a lot of my students' clients and how often they're torn between like maintaining past traditions and ideas and beliefs mm -hmm. and like trying to really move those ideas forward and use them and thinking about like, how does that fit with like what I'm trying to achieve, what I'm dealing with or what I'm doing right now. And it's a lot of tension that people hold between really trying to honor and value their past and how they use that past to inform them now and thinking about like how they'll use it, you know, in the future, especially when you think about offspring. But I do think like Sarah said, there's a cultural element there. And I think some communities experience that tension a lot more than others. Um, I think, you know, in some communities, it's about thinking about just the future. And in others, it's really about how do you continue to pass on like certain traditions and legacies? And I think when you're thinking about how contexts change over time, there has to be a level of adaptability, right? You have yeah. to know when and how things can fit, especially if you're trying to take 
traditions and pass them on to your children. And we're thinking about each child's need, right? Like what makes sense for what they need? So I think for me, it's always thinking about like your offspring, right? But also seeing how you can hold on to some of those traditions in a way that still meet the needs of that offspring. So I think it's just being really intentional about trying to pull the thread, like continue sort mm. of that history and that legacy. I think you have to just do it with a lot of intention. It takes a lot more effort, I think. But there's things that, you know, from my community, particularly like, you know, um, that have been passed on for generations within my culture that I think don't make sense for trying to do that with Trey. He lives in a different country, different customs, different politics, different everything, right? And so that won't support his needs now. But I think there's things that I think he could really value from that he could use to grow and sort of pass on, you know, to his future generation. So I think it's just deciding, right? Like, what are the things that really work here for him and what doesn't? Yeah, I think complicated is a really great way to explain this one. I think generally that I would describe this advice as good advice, but with all of the caveats that we've talked about, especially if it doesn't fit for you. But I also think of it much more in terms of like um, kind of what Sesson was alluding to um, when negative things are passed down. When I heard this, I first thought of like generational trauma um, and trying to stop, you know, trying to pay homage to our ancestors for the negative maybe patterns that they passed down and think more about the future generations and how you can like break those uh, patterns to help bolster. But I thought about two things. And honestly, the first thing I thought about when I read this was for me as a white person, a lot very recently has come up about in our culture and in our society about paying homage to monuments. And I live in the South, so this is a very present thing. And it feels like a lot of people are trying to make their ancestors proud and many, many other policies, all of these racialized um, uh, policies that have been moved forward. Um, rather paying homage and making our ancestors proud than what's best for our children moving forward in the society for our children where we can all be loved and respected and bolstered. So, and I probably didn't say that eloquently at all. I apologize. Um, but that was the other thing that this uh, tweet really brought up for me is how as, you know, uh, a white parent, I can ensure that I'm doing the best for my child and not paying homage to, <laughs> that might be probably the wrong word, to make my ancestors proud because that doesn't really matter so much to me as my children living in a way that they can respect and love others. So from a family angle, but also a societal angle, this brought up a whole lot of thoughts for me. And I guess that's why I think it's good advice. And it seems like you guys both do too. So next, popping over to, can you guys guess? The ticks and the talks. Um, I know you guys are super surprised about that. <laughs> getting an opinion of a wedding planner on a cake smashing incident. Oh, I know. Have you all seen this? Bride seeks divorce one day after groom smashes her face into wedding cake. And while she compromised with him on the unspecified things he wanted, she had only one hard and fast rule for him. Don't rub cake in her face during the reception. It says, so while the couple was married shortly before Christmas, the bride is now hoping to get either an annulment or divorce by the end of January. Then it says, all the while, just about everyone she knows has tried to get her to give her husband a second chance. They figure her claustrophobia after a car accident influenced her reaction and assured her that she loves him despite her no longer feeling as though she does and that he loves her. I am anti-cake smashing as a wedding planner in general, but this, yeah, I think she should probably get that annulment. What do you think? So there's a video also, if you want to go to click on the link in the description, uh, where it's not just a smashing of, you know, like a gentle push of cake into the face. It seems like his whole body went after it. Um, so 
It's not a whole lot of good or bad advice. I guess the good or bad advice is what this uh, wedding planner is saying about go ahead and get that annulment. But I'm also curious what your thoughts were, not necessarily on if she should get the annulment, but you definitely can comment on that about this if it's good or bad advice. Yeah, I'm going to say good advice. I think probably this article that she's commenting on is distilled that issue um, to one action about cake smashing. But if the context is part of why she asked for that rule for their wedding ahead of time is because she has experienced trauma that makes her fear of that worse. That makes this worse, not better. And also, there's very likely some other relationship history here, aside from a singular piece of cake going to her face, that informs potentially his lack of respect and caring for her. And those are big core issues. And I'm not sure we should wait five to ten more years before we consider separation. Um, uh, That all feels really problematic. Good advice. Especially the layer of um, the agreement beforehand. Like, it's not like it wasn't communicated. It wasn't like she didn't express the trauma that she felt with the claustrophobia and the uh, car accident. So we're saying, yeah, more kind of, yeah. Woods is good advice. Sess, thoughts? Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think for me, it feels like a symptom of something greater that we don't have a window into. Um, clearly, and if this person is making this decision, I have to imagine it's not based off of one incident. And it's really disappointing to hear that, you know, if there was one request and that couldn't be honored, especially um, on their wedding day. I I think like that's reflective of like, can you hear me? Can you see me? Can you value the things that are important to me? Like, I would be all kinds of concerned on that particular day if my partner... um, gave into their instinct to do what felt good for them um, only, you know, on the day where you really should be thinking about both of you and the relationship. So, I mean, I am confident to say there's more there than just this incident to say, like, if this person is making that call, then that's what they need for themselves. And that's brave too, you know, you go through planning a wedding, getting married, and it's like, not to get divorced. So if you're making that call, I have to imagine that you have to trust what that person is I agree. And it sounds like very few people in her life are being supportive too, which I think also just makes it really, really hard. Makes you feel probably, I'm sure, a a little gaslit for it as well. Um, So overall, uh, good advice. And also just the awareness that sometimes a behavior is merely a symptom of something ongoing. So if someone tells you that, something happened, you know, know that it also could be a, a symptom of, or of a pattern of behaviors as well. All right. Last but certainly not least, we're going to pop over to Twitter. We're just covering all of our bases today. We're doing Instagram. We're doing TikTok and Twitter. Listen, I like to get around. What did I just say? Anyway, from Twitter, Catherine Tan talks about wedding advice. We're just really in wedding land today. Um, I have been married for almost a decade. The only piece of advice I have for newly engaged, never marry anyone you wouldn't be willing to divorce. It's a real bummer at a bridal shower, but it's the truth. I have thought about this. It has wormed into my brain. I have, uh, it's just such an interesting advice. What are you thinking, good or bad? Also, what do you think it means? So that is really interesting. And I could see how that would be a really big bummer at Pride <laughs> Let's celebrate your getting a divorce. This marriage going uh, by talking about how you can successfully exit it. My best guess is that potentially what she's intending to mean here um is that somebody that you would be willing to divorce would be a partner who, in the context of divorcing, would remain a good person, would remain uh, civil, and would behave respectfully. And um, I am not 
certain that we always know who those people are mm. when we marry. Meaning, I think we sort of think about divorce as this one concrete decision where people decide, I'm going to divorce, I would like a divorce, therefore I shall pursue divorce, I pursue divorce, it's done. Done. But in reality, what the research shows is that there's a lot of moving in and out of that decision and in and out of the relationship in terms of um, thinking about divorce and wanting to lean that way versus even in the context of talking about divorce, leaning back into the relationship. And so in a lot of that movement, if on top of that, research suggests that the legal systems through which couples pursue separation are geared towards increasing hostility in relationships. They're not promoting of civil relationships once divorce proceedings may have even started that there are mechanisms to do that, like collaborative divorce under like the collaborative law process that can help couples navigate their differences and navigate separating outside of the, the legal system. But in general, our system and how we support families legally is very adversarial, right? And so I think that potentially this advice could speak to how important it is to be marrying somebody who is respectful and honest and a good communicator. And all of those things are very, very uh, foundational for a quality relationship, but you're not necessarily going to be able to predict who's going to remain civil when you start to divorce, because that's not just about that one person and that one decision at that one moment. So good advice, but also difficult to mm, predict. Might be hard. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes. Sess, thoughts? You know, I think it's interesting because I think ideally we think when we come to a place in our relationship where it's not working anymore and we decide to do this really difficult, life-changing thing like divorce, that all parties could come to the table and be mature and manage it well and be cordial and civil. But I think divorce is so much more complicated than that and that it's so painful. And so I think Mm -hmm. we may have been in the relationship in ways that were really respectful and kind. And then our partner does something, right? Like a huge betrayal thinks over time that we can't really adjust to or grow to be, you know, okay with. And we end up leaving that relationship and Mm -hmm. we were in a lot of pain around. And when you're in a lot of pain, you're reactive to that pain. And so I don't know that it's reflective of who a person is in terms of how they respond mm. at the point where, you know, when the they're divorcing. Mm, right? That's like a good point. Mm. It's a really tumultuous time for many. And for some, they feel like they may act in ways that don't align with, you know, who they typically, like the values and beliefs that they have or how they typically respond. So I don't know that I feel like we can always hold somebody to reacting in this ideal manner um it's a process and it's messy and there's versions of ourselves that we're happy and proud of during this period and i'm sure there's versions of ourselves that we're like i wish i had the emotional bandwidth and intelligence Mm -hmm. and you know distress tolerance to manage so i think like i don't know that it was like somebody you're willing to divorce like i know that if i were to ever get divorced i would not be happy at that very end (laughs) you know like there would be Mm -hmm. moments where i would be not that person that you would want to be friends with after divorce, right? Like, it's just like, there's so much love and energy that you've invested. The morning that you go through the grief is a reflection of all that sometimes. And it's like, yeah, we're not in a place where we would probably be cordial for at least maybe some time, potentially. You know, you hear of those couples who are best friends afterwards, or they make it work for the kids, which especially when there's kids involved, you have to really know how to at least Mm -hmm. have the business side of that down, right? There's really, that is critical. But like how you engage each other, I think there's some grace that we need to recognize needs to be there. And um, I think there are a lot of people who start out rocky who can get to that place. And but it takes time and effort and some patience, sometimes to see that process through. And research would support that during divorce. um, A lot of people experience a lot of uh, tumultuousness, tumult, Tumult. a lot of tumult. A lot of fighting. Turmoil? You're thinking turmoil? Is that the A lot of turmoil? Is that the noun? Anyway, um, this is not an English class. But later, most uh, divorced 
people, their fighting, their conflict calms down a year or two years later. So even though in the moment it's really tumultuous, there we go, um, the vast majority do kind of settle down into something. Um, I think what we're kind of getting at is the idea is really nice. Like you want someone who, at least at the moment, um, you know is not a spiteful person, know is not um, someone who might um, – as Catherine kind of alludes to later, is not going to ruin your finances and try to like ruin your relationship with your children. Um, like in the moment when you're getting married, if your partner does not display those characteristics, I think that's probably a good idea, but we can't necessarily predict it. Like in the moment, if you could tell your partner is really, really spiteful and has a tendency to ruin other people's lives and finances, maybe uh -huh. not the ideal partner. Um, but yeah, it is difficult to predict it, especially when people are going through potentially one of the uh, most emotionally draining um, uh, and hard moments of their life. It is really difficult to predict how people um, will behave. But generally, good advice. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get at us on all the social medias about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.